Hello everybody, this is Paul Miller, and you're listening to the Tuna Town Talks podcast, located in Venice, Louisiana, the fishing capital of the world. Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of Tuna Town Talks. I'm here today with Dr. Marcus Draymond, correct? Dryman, yes. Marcus Dryman. Um, So guys, um, first off, I I just want to let you guys know, I wanted to have... um, Dr. Dremon on today to talk to us a little bit about what his expertise are in. He's a professor here at Mississippi State. And um, yeah, I'll let you tell us um, uh, honestly what you were just telling me about like what you actually do, what your title is, and what you do for Mississippi State. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, first of all, thanks for having me. It, uh, it's a pleasure to speak with you and, and to talk about these issues that are important to anglers here in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, like you said, I'm a, an assistant extension professor. Um, which means that my job is to interact with commercial and recreational fishermen in our part of the world and to hear what they think are the most pressing issues and to help them either get the information they need to help solve those issues or to do the research that's required to help them solve those issues. So with that said, my work really spans this gamut um, of applied fisheries ecology. So working, working out... Um, where fish are and why and when, um, helping anglers figure out issues that keep them from engaging in the process of a stock assessment or regulatory changes or things like that, and otherwise just serving as a bridge or a translator to help the science that dictates how stocks are managed, help that science be widely understood and widely available to anybody who's interested. Awesome. Yeah, that's I feel like that's extremely needed. And that's honestly one of the base like I I do these podcasts. And a lot of times when we talk about conservation, the baseline of the argument is the stock assessment. Because if you can't agree on what is actually out there, and who's taking what, then we don't really have anything to base the argument off. (laughs) Do you see what I'm saying? So that's definitely one of the reasons that I wanted to have um, you on the podcast, but before we get um, too far into that, I'd like to start the the podcast with the way that we actually first met, and we just kind of put two and two together whenever I was walking up, and um, I, I saw his picture, and I, I was pretty confident that I knew who you were, but um, when I was working on uh, the boat called the Lady Anne, um, you guys did some. What were you guys doing that day? Yeah. So he he was on a charter that I was I was a mate of. So yeah, um, what a trip that was. So we were on the Lady Anne out of Dolphin Island, Alabama, which is a fantastic boat, fantastic crew, and we were doing a graduate student's thesis work, her research project, mm-hmm. which involved catching and um, tagging greater amberjack. That's right. Yeah. So <clears throat> we had just finished a full day of catching a whole bunch of reef donkeys, and we were all worn out. Yeah. Um, I remember this because it was an overnight It was an overnight trip. That that was one of the longer trips that we got to do on the Lady Inn whenever somebody would book the overnighters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So since it was an overnight trip and we were done with our work for the day, as the sun started going down, Captain Mike thought we'd um, – see if we could catch some marlin and we, you know we put out some rigs and long story short we did we hooked up with three of them three <laughs> blue marlin which it was craziest thing man. yeah um <laughs> and by far the most i've ever seen and certainly the the only one that i've ever caught myself so that was a a very very memorable trip for me yeah. i'll never forget feeling like that fish had just 
completely whipped me, <laughs> but it yeah. was awesome. It was, man. I, I remember we, we pulled up to the beer can and we always, Mike always, he would troll at first, you know, and normally, especially when the sun was going down, he would stay trolling and really wanting to catch tunas. We had a bunch of tuna lures out and, uh, I remember we made that first wrap and we, that was the biggest one. That was the one mm-hmm. that you caught. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we were like, man, that was cool. You know, put them back out. Sure enough, we hook another one, and we're like, golly, this is just crazy, you know. We we build that one, and then we hooked another one on like smaller t- smaller pound test. I think we landed one more, but I know I know we hooked up four times yeah. right there before the sun went down. It was unbelievable, oh. man. It was definitely one of the best blue marlin bites that I've ever seen, and it's crazy that now <laughs> we're meeting up again, and and I, I was able to tell the story on the podcast. Yeah, man, I, I love that. That is <laughs> that's I'll never forget that day. Yeah, it was a uh, pretty pretty. Um, did did we break down that night, or was that another? Was that was another? Trip. I think that was another trip. Yeah, that was another trip. No, we we ended up going. I think we did more amberjack fishing the next day and then and then went in. Yeah, that was awesome though. Um yeah, I remember that trip because you were very fascinated with some of the sharks we caught that night. <laughs> <laughs> so can you tell us a little like your a lot of your work is with sharks, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd say like any, you know, any young, young boy or girl, I grew up just absolutely fascinated with sharks. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you is where does that passion come from? Oh, man, I mean, it, it, I've had it since the, the youngest age, and that passion and just curiosity, you know, led me to start learning more about them and seeking opportunities with them in the water. So rather than, you know, hopping out of the water when we'd see a shark, I'd, I'd stay in a little bit longer and, you know, try to will myself to not be too afraid of some of these small sharks and the more I learned, the more I was just blown away with how cool they are. Yeah. And here I am, you know, a 45-year-old man, but I, I've had the chance, you know, the fortune, the good fortune to be able to study these creatures that I've been fascinated with since a very, very young age. Yeah. They've definitely um, fascinated me for a long time, too. I don't, I don't know. Uh, I can remember... What you know, sharks were definitely not the reason for getting in the water. And whenever we would see them, like I grew up diving a lot and free diving a lot, and whenever we would see them, you would get scared. And then over the years, you might get in the water with a ton of them. And then there was like one or two days that happened, and I felt like my fear of sharks were kind of just mm-hmm. uplifted. But uh, yep. now it's definitely cool to get up up close and personal with them in the water. It's definitely like a humbling experience. <laughs> oh, yeah. They're just, they're so beautiful. You know, they play such an important role in our ecosystem. And, you know, like you mentioned, a, a lot of what my lab does is focused on understanding um, why sharks are where they are and when and doing a lot of that basic ecological and biological research that is used for things like stock assessments, right. which is just, you know, as you mentioned, and that's how we tell the health of a population of fish is by a stock assessment. Right. And um, can you tell us a little bit about like what, what is the role of the sharks in the ecosystem? Sure. You know, I think perhaps the easiest way to be, to think about it would be to think about a lion in the savannah. You know, it's kind of a, it's a top predator. Uh, they play this important role in keeping populations of their prey in check you know so they they serve a very unusual role because as upper level predators they're not as abundant 
as the prey that they consume. Mm -hmm. um, but their role, you know, the kind of higher you are in that food web, sort of the more magnified your role is. Right. So um, they play that role. Many sharks do things like the large tiger sharks and bull yeah. sharks in this area. But then we have a lot of sharks that don't function that exact way. They're more like the middle of a food web, right? Or they're what we call mesopredators. Mm -hmm. Things like the sharp-nosed sharks and the black-nosed sharks. Kind of like the scavengers. Some a little bit, yeah. I mean, and they eat smaller fish, but they still have fish that eat them. Right. Right. So a true apex predator or a top predator, there's no nothing that eats them. Right. Right. And we know that that's not the case for a lot of the smaller sharks. Yeah. But that's one of the great things about the northern Gulf is we have so many different types of sharks. You know, mm -hmm. from big hammerheads and tiger sharks and bull sharks down to you know much smaller and more common species yeah do, how many how many of those do we have mostly uh residential populations of sharks or do you do you believe that a lot of them are migratory yeah that's a great question so the answer is both we have certain species that show what we call site fidelity in other words they might hang around the artificial reef permit zone off the coast of alabama uh, then we have h others that are really migratory, and they come from the East Coast and down around Florida and up into the Northern Gulf, and they're only here seasonally. And what type of sharks are those? Oh, great hammerheads, yeah. for example, mm -hmm. are really migratory. You know, um, some of these tiger sharks, mm -hmm. we see pulses in their populations. Uh, black tip sharks, you know, they form big schools, and they're really a, a migratory species. What about particularly like the uh, your sandbar sharks and duskies and those types? We see tons yeah. of those. Like, are those um, like are those more migratory? That's a great question, and the answer is we're we're not entirely sure. Um, mm -hmm. We don't have the greatest data for those two species, uh, which you know it's it's interesting you mentioned those two because they're similar in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, sandbar sharks um, off the coast of Alabama, for example, certainly seem to spend a lot of their time there in the artificial reef permit zone. But I think seasonally they still may move away, but they're always coming back. Yeah. So, I mean, we've had re tag returns. You know, we do a lot of shark tagging. And so a lot of times we'll have tagged a shark, a sandbar shark in the reef permit zone. And then five years later, someone will catch it and it'll be a very near to the spot where we originally tagged it. Mm -hmm. Now, it may have left during those five years, but it obviously it came, came back. back yeah. So You don't really know where its whereabouts yeah. are. Right? Exactly. Um, the the sandbars and I think duskies as well, but they're protected, correct? Are both of them? They are. There's a, there's a big list of sharks that are protected, correct? You know, yes, the short answer is yes, and that's uh, a bit of a shame. If you look at the list of small coastal species, it's pretty small. If you look at the group that's managed as large coastal sharks, that's bigger, but still small. The list of protected sharks is bigger than both of those lists. Right. Um, and that's simply because we've historically over-harvested many of those species. And sandbar shark is a perfect example. So it was overfished in the 80s and 90s. It really, I didn't know that. So it was overfished due to finning? It was an easy fish to catch? Right? Well, not necessarily easy to catch, but it had a big fin-to-body weight mm, ratio. That makes sense. So they have those giant pecs. They have those giant pecs and that big, huge dorsal fin. Mm -hmm. So because of that, they were overfished. They've been under a harvest moratorium since 2010. Mm -hmm. And as you've seen on the water, it looks like their populations are starting to recover, which yeah. is good. Yeah. You know, people are saying they see more and more of them, yeah. both sandbar and dusky, and that's a great thing. Yeah, I think it's extremely odd to me that um, 
like we don't have any protected fish species out there you know you can pretty much kill any fish species that's out there but yet we have sharks that are protected you know i guess mm -hmm. there was a giant need to uh protect these things but would you say from what you've seen or maybe you guys' research that they might be overpopulated at this point like there's more than, than 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 what the ecosystem like it might be imbalanced at this point yeah and that's a really good question and it's a really timely question i get that question a lot and the answer is kind of complicated um are there more sharks today let's say a sandbar shark are there more sandbar sharks in the gulf of mexico today than 10 years ago yes mm -hmm. um is that an imbalance in the natural ecosystem uh no so this concept is called a shifting baseline so if you talk to a guy like like mike theory right mm -hmm. who's been on the water for 50 years i mean he could tell you what those shark populations look like 50 years ago. So he's seen them when they were not being over-harvested. Then he's seen those populations go down, and now they're coming back up. So it's a cycle. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, as long as we, me, you know, humans are interacting in these marine fisheries ecosystems, we're taking that natural system a little bit out of balance from what it would be if it was completely unfished. Yeah. So you I don't, don't think there's too many sharks, but their populations are recovering now that they've had these protections. Yeah. Do you not think we're part of the ecosystem? This is an interesting question. <laughs> no, I mean, we are. And even a natural ecosystem, we are uh, absolutely part of that ecosystem. Should we be allowed to harvest sharks? Absolutely. Should yeah. we be able allowed to harvest tunas and red snapper and, you know, cobia? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, because to me it seems a little bit like having a, uh, a, a piece of property that you want to manage deer on and saying – all right, you can kill the deer, but you can't kill any of the things that might, mm -hmm. you know, eat those deer. So, you know, eventually you would have too many coyotes and wolves. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, I mean, there's, there's no doubt about it. Now, where... It's, it it's awesome to see that you're in agreement with that because, like, you're, you, somebody that's a scholar, like, knowing that and seeing that gives me a lot of a lot of hope for, you know, what we think on a natural... You know, yeah. just seeing it there and it's it's protected. Like, it's, it's nice to see somebody that's actually... You know, well, seen it and agrees. I, th I, I thank you for saying that. And I want to be really clear, you know, I, I've devoted my entire adult life to studying sharks. I mean, you could say that I'm, I'm crazy about sharks, right? But mm -hmm. I recognize that that's a natural resource. Yeah. Sharks are to be harvested. They're to be eaten, consumed, you know, used, just like we use any other natural resource, like a deer yeah. or like a red snapper. The, the problem, the, the reason shark populations get in trouble is because they're very slow-growing. Uh, mm -hmm. shark, most sharks are very late to mature. They have relatively few offspring. Um, you know, dusky sharks, let's take those for example. They only produce, reproduce maybe once every three years, mm -hmm. right? So if their adult population is lowered substantially, it just takes those populations a long Three to six time. to nine years, right? Oh, I mean, if you look at the whole population trajectory, I mean, the rebuilding plan says that that stock won't be built for another hundred or more years. Really? Yeah. Wow. And that's tough to reconcile with fishermen on the water that are saying that duskies are everywhere, you know, so yeah. that there's often a disconnect between what fishermen are seeing on the water, which is true. I mean, they're obviously seeing it, and yeah. that's true. And what a stock assessment says, which is just based on the best available data, but it might not be the complete available, you know, it might not be every bit of data that's completely available. So yeah. it's, 
I would, I mean, this is just my opinion. I would say instead of trying to get things the back to way, the way that they were, that I think we should try and figure out a, a better way for us to coexist with our environment that's out there. You know, through reefs, through managing, through honestly through managing sharks giving like it's pretty sad like there's most days you can go out there i'd say every day you could go out there and catch a shark but to catch a shark that's not protected gets a little bit more tricky sometimes Mm -hmm. it's harder to find those sharks and um if they did allow you know um a charter boat to target sharks and to um you know do that and make a name for himself shark fishing i mean mark the shark down in miami he does sure. that you know oh yeah but it's almost not even an option because of that and i think um you know with other ways through uh making reefs keeping rigs out there you know that's a way of us coexisting and making the environment a better place i agree 100 percent with everything you said and, and just to reiterate um we do i mean we do need to coexist this is a natural system that we all share and sharks are an important part of that but obviously humans are an important part of that i mean a a more important part of that you would argue i would argue right and so finding that balance um is tricky only because there are more and more and more and more fishermen yeah because exactly yeah we're like a growing population we are growing interest of fishing and if you know if our world is only so big it's a finite space you know it's that that creates a challenge and it's exactly like you said it, it's a coexistence challenge yeah yeah i just feel like a lot of the stock from some of the research and we'll, we'll get more into stock assessments but is a lot of the stock assessment um a lot of their goals is it focused on getting it back to the way it was before like is it i mean could should we should we try and like get rid of that idea do you think no, so no. the The answer to the question is no. A stock assessment, and we'll just take NOAA Fisheries for for example. Their charge, you know, what they're what they're uh, mandated to do, is to sustainably manage populations of the fish that are under their purview. So, not to like, let's take red snapper for example, not to make the red snapper population what it was like before anybody was fishing. Their goal is actually NOAA Fisheries' goal is to let fishermen remove as many snapper as possible while still protecting the sustainability of the stock so that the stock can be fished next year and 10 years from now. So I think people often um, forget that NOAA Fisheries is an agency that is for fishermen. I mean, they're there to help those fishermen get sustainable yield for the rest of their careers because if a fisherman depletes a resource, a fisherman will be the first one to tell you that puts him out of a job. I mean, that's not what he's trying to do, whether you're a commercial or right. recreational fisherman. Yeah, that's that's the thing is we should, like to me, whether you're charter fishing, commercial, um, scholar, like we all want the same thing, but a lot of times we fight against each other so much and it's well, it's very frustrating to see, you know, I, <laughs> especially I for some, yeah, somebody like yourself, you know, it's very frustrating. And you know, and a lot of it's just we don't speak the same language because, it's true. you know, yeah. we... A scholar has information that a fisherman doesn't, and a fisherman has so much information that Mm -hmm. a scholar doesn't, right? So there's so much opportunity for us to be learning from each other, but sometimes we just don't speak the same language. Yeah, I agree. Um, And and that's that's why I think this podcast is, like, such an awesome tool for something like this, you know? (laughs) You know, I mean, uh, so much of what I've learned uh, about, you know, these marine ecosystems on the water comes from salty fishermen who've spent their lives, I mean, you know, 
200 plus 300 plus sea days a year on the water and they just have a an institutional knowledge that someone like me is never going to be able to have so and they both are extremely valuable mm -hmm. without a doubt both are very extremely valuable and when you put them together it's like we could get to new places right i agree <laughs> that's right so um before we move on to sharks i have a, a question um like commercial fishing for um uh, sharks federally was banned in 2010 is that correct no so that's just for that one species just for the sandbar shark um, yeah but there was a bill that was passed that was called the uh i forget was a shark i looked it up yesterday but it's like a sh shark bill that was passed in 2010 that basically uh banned shark finning like from things transporting lines like you had to have the full body shark you can't just uh <coughs> <coughs> pass sharks from state line to state line with with the fins detached anymore. yeah yeah and that that's a complicated thing and i'm I'm happy to explain that so the idea is that the fin of a shark is much more valuable than the meat right so it's not like a red snapper or a red drum i mean right correct. a fisherman that's harvesting a shark they're going to get a lot more for that fin than they are for the flesh so what's prohibited is the concept of shark finning right so if you said sh I thought I Which thought you said shark fishing. Yeah. Well, shark finning is prohib that's well, prohibited. Well, you can't even shark fish in federal waters. Is that not right? Like a uh, commercial shark fisherman like every year off of Venice, we have a like lot of people kill sharks there. But they're only allowed to do it in state waters. Is that something that you're not allowed to do in federal water, or you have to have a different permit to shark fish? You just have to have a different permit. Oh, There's so you can fe federally shark fish? 100%. Okay. Yeah. yeah. NOAA Fisheries manages the federal quotas for sharks. For example, like, like the shark fishery you're talking about in coastal Louisiana, that's a state-level fishery. Yeah. But you can also harvest black tips in the offshore waters of Louisiana. Um, and there's a large black tip quota. In fact, the black tip quota in the western Gulf of Mexico um, is pretty substantial. Yeah. So, yeah. yes, you can absolutely commercially fish for sharks. So, um, Brett, like this past year, we saw the the, uh, the Coast Guard. They got some people in trouble that were f fishing out of um, state waters. So they were in federal waters, and they got in trouble, and they made a big post on Facebook, and a lot of people were so happy that they did this. Um but what my question is, is if those fish, do, these sharks, do they come into state waters in order to spawn or do what they need to do and then they go offshore or how does that work? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's very species specific. Um, and let's just go back to the black tip shark, for example. We know that those large pregnant females, they do come inshore and that's where they drop their pups. So you can think of a lot of these near shore areas, Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, are nursery areas for small little black tips. So you do, especially in the spring, um, you do see high concentrations of those black tip sharks inshore. Yeah. Um, but you do also see black tips offshore. So right. there are inshore, offshore migrations. So once they go inshore and they do what they need to do and they go back offshore, do they just stay offshore at that point or do they come back in? Both. And, you know, not to just keep punting and saying, oh, they do all of the above, but they kind of do, right? right. So, so we, they spawn multiple times. They reproduce multiple times in no, their life. Uh, yes, um, you know, and, and you think about a bony fish like a red snapper. They're spawning, right, where they're putting out, you know, millions of eggs at a time. It's different. You know, sharks don't even actually spawn in the sense of the of the word spawn. They undergo parturition, so they give a live birth 
to individual pups. So it's much more like a dog right. um, or something like that. But in the case of a black tip shark, they usually produce, reproduce once a year. Some species reproduce once every two years. Some species it's once every three years. Um, and that affects their overall sustainability. If they, if they can be reproducing more often, then that stock can be harvested um, more intensely. Right. Okay. So when you think about a shark fishery, an ideal shark fishery would be executed on a fish, on a shark that grows very quickly, um, that reaches maturity at a very young age, and that reproduces very frequently. Right. That would be a very productive stock of sharks, and that would make for a lot of sharks so that there could be high levels of removals for fisheries. <laughs> Interesting. Very good stuff right there. Um, so if we're going to, I want to move into uh, stock assessments, um, but can you explain um, uh, like the way that we previously done it? And then I know this past spring they released the great American red snapper count, which is to be said the, the better count that's saying that we have three to four times as many, right? That's right. And uh, can you explain the process of the stock assessment? Yeah, you know, um, it's a complicated process, if we're being honest. And it starts with mathematics and, and statistics, you know. Or I should say it finishes with mathematics and statistics. But there's essentially three components that go into a stock assessment. Um, there is the biology, so understanding how old a species gets, how often it reproduces, things like that. Um, you need uh, an idea of the population trajectory, which we call an index of relative abundance. So over the past 10 years, has the population of red snapper been going up or down or stable? So that's the second piece. The third piece of information you need are landings, you know, the number of red snapper actually being caught and landed. Now, those are three kind of simple bins worth of information, but then that's where all the math and statistics comes in and makes a very complicated um, set of formula that dictate what this population looks like. And now, there are a lot of assumptions that have to be made. We have to understand things like natural mortality. What's the natural mortality of a red snapper? Well, it's really difficult to know. Mm -hmm. We have mathematical ways we can estimate that. Um, you have to know what the selectivity of your gear type is. Is, does every hook that you put in the water, does every single hook catch a red snapper or is there some relationship there? You have to know so many different things and all of that information is fed into a stock assessment. And there are trained statisticians and mathematical modelers at NOAA Fisheries who take all of that information and put that into a formal stock assessment. And that's the process in the United States at least. Um, by which stock assessments have been made, you know, for the past you know, many, many decades. So the question then is, well, what was the great red snapper count? Uh, and, the, and the short answer is, it kind of gets back to one of those things I was talking about earlier. What the fishermen saw on the water with respect to red snapper was very different than what the stock assessment said. The stock assessment said, well, we have a stock that's just still rebuilding. It can't be harvested too heavily. On the other hand, you have fishermen that are saying, we can't catch any other species of reef fish because red snapper beats everything to the hook because there's so many of them. Mm -hmm. So there was, some di there was a big disconnect there. Yeah. So because of that, Congress allocated a large sum of money to a team of researchers from the Gulf of Mexico um, and, this, you know, and, and across the entire United States, really, 
and myself along with you know about two dozen uh, you know, other professors and statisticians and mathematicians and whatnot all got together and tried to come up with an independent estimate of how many red snapper were in the Gulf of Mexico so for that two-year period the 20 something or two dozen of us singularly thought about that and devoted lots of time and resources and field teams and you know thought to that one question how many red snapper are in the United States Gulf of Mexico so you know there might have only been two dozen of us um, kind of lead scholars on that project but each of us runs a team that has another dozen or more so you know it took a hundred people or so thinking about this for two full years to come up with this number and so there was an unparalleled and unprecedented amount of effort um, and time and money that went into making this independent estimate of red snapper so your question might be well why is the number we found so much different than what the traditional stock assessment found and the short answer would be because we were able to sample areas that the traditional stock assessment had never been able to sample so we literally were trying to sample as much as we could from you know the south end of texas all the way to the south end of florida out to whatever you know 200 meters you know 600 feet something like that so all it was this massive amount of effort using all of these techniques the remotely operated vehicles these um, towed camera arrays uh, regular fishing you know bandit gear vertical long line fishing whenever you guys fished I know part of the old assessment was that they wouldn't actually fish on um, artificially put structures so no you know no actual reefs did you guys survey those reefs absolutely right red snapper count yeah absolutely and in fairness to noah those <laughs> artificial reefs have always been considered um just not in a way that that's directly understandable to to someone who's not deep into the weeds of that mathematical model but the way we we very um intentionally sampled those artificial reefs whether it's the rigs um, in Louisiana or the toppled platforms in Texas or our artificial reef pyramids you know here off the coast of Alabama and Mississippi so we were very intentional to say alright if this Gulf of Mexico is our sampling universe we want to make sure we sample you know as much artificial habitat as possible as much natural habitat as possible but then in these deeper waters it turns out there's essentially a whole different type of structure these pipelines natural oil and gas pipelines that are traversing the entire Gulf of Mexico and as it turns out there's a some density of red snapper on those pipelines now it may not be a lot per square inch of pipeline but there's thousands and thousands of miles of this habitat so even a low density of fish over such a vast area adds up to a lot of red snapper yeah and there's there's uh I mean I would say that there's pipelines have created more snapper you know, more would you say that that you know what was actually one of my question that these rigs that we have out there or these structures that w like people are putting out there is this making more red snapper or do you think it's just attracting them yeah I mean, it's i mean like we have a we have a residential stock of yellowfin tuna would that stock of yellowfin tuna be there if we didn't have these rigs providing the bait for them like what do you what do you think yeah no it, it's such an interesting question it's 
it's a very academic question. I feel like I'm having a discussion with another scholar. <laughs> um, when it comes to red snapper in the Gulf of Mexico, this question, in other words, is it attraction or is it production, has been an ongoing question without a clear resolution for more than 20 years. Now, my, my personal opinion is yes, these additional structures, whether it's habitat in the Alabama Reef Permit Zone or these pipelines in the offshore portion of the Gulf, I do think ultimately that's leading to increased production of red snapper, more fish, yeah. right? It's not just simply attracting fish from other areas. Ultimately, it's leading to a, a net gain yeah, in so, productivity. I mean, there, I mean, it could be possible that before we had all these structures out here in the 1918 and 1900s, like it could be possible that the fishery wasn't as good as what it is now. Would you say that that could be possible or no? What I would say is that with respect to habitat, that the distribution of the hot spots in the fishery has shifted. So if we think about the initial first efforts for the red snapper fishery in the U.S. Gulf of Mexico, those are over in Pensacola. Those are over in Florida. Like, And oh. if you think about real dense red snapper hot spots right now, you don't think about Pensacola, right? Yeah. You think about these areas with these artificial structures and things like that. So as a fishery evolves and changes, the biomass within that fishery will redistribute. And, you know, it's a complex natural system, but that's one of the things that makes understanding how many fish are out there so complicated. Well, it makes perfect sense to me. It's one of the things that I say commonly about uh, triple tail, like people say that, you know, certain years we won't have a lot of triple tail in, in certain areas along the coast. <clears throat> but the year before you had a, a really good year of them. And so to me, it doesn't mean that we've overfished them necessarily that the, the fish might actually feel that pressure and not put fish back into that area. Is that the same thing that you're saying that would happen to the red snapper? If you fished them heavily in one area of the Gulf, they might move to the other area of the Gulf for the betterment of the species as a whole. In essence, you know, essentially what I'm saying is that there's this relationship between the adult stock and recruitment. So the number of eggs that can be produced, there should be a relationship between that and the health of the adult stock. And those eggs that are produced, I mean, they get moved around with the currents, and, and that's a very complicated system. Isn't it? I mean, that's got to be extreme chance, right, that these fish actually, like, does it happen better certain times than others? I mean, like... It sure enough does. Um, and we call that strong recruitment, you know, a, a strong year class moving through a system, and it's amazing. Sometimes if you have enough data, and for certain species, you can actually track the progression of a strong year class. Yeah. It's like if there was a killer basketball team in the fifth grade, and they move from the sixth grade together into the seventh grade together, and you see that basketball team, you see them migrate through up through high school, and that team is this awesome team, and you see that cohort, they're all grown, they've all grown up together, they've all played together, and they move through that system. That's the same thing with fish a strong year class, I mean, you see them born and you can track the progression of that strong year class all the way through into adult. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah I would say I've, I've experienced that with uh, like mahi particularly. Like some years, I mean, you can't beat them off the boat. You yeah. Know? And then other years, like you probably won't catch one, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, just now you mentioned mahi and triple tail, and those are really, really interesting species um, for this reason. If you want to talk about a species that should be heavily harvested, it's those two. And the simple reason is 
both of those species, either a mahi or a triple tail, reaches a maximum age of either four or five years. Yeah, that's wild. So that 40-pound triple tail they caught off Louisiana a couple of years ago, that individual fish, we happen to have aged that individual, that was a five-year-old fish. Yeah, that's what I've heard. That's unbelievable. It's nuts. You know, I, I caught three 30-pounders in, uh, in two days, two two years mm-hmm. ago, and I sent all the otoliths back. Really? Yeah, I had a. It was a thirty-eight, two, a thirty-six, and a thirty-one. I still haven't got the results back for them. I got. I do a lot of triple tail fishing. I don't know if really? you know this about me. I did know out that. of off of Louisiana. It's it's unbelievable. Um, it's really really good. That's cool, man. Yeah, but uh, you guys have done some research into triple tail, right? Yeah, you, you do a lot of work with triple tail. Just we've done a little bit. Yeah, you know we're working with the guys here in Mississippi to understand the movements of satellite tagged triple tail, which has just been really Mm eye-opening and we just finished up a project where we determined the age and growth of triple tail you know just like you said based on the otoliths yeah um and and they're just a fascinating fish i mean they're such a strange looking fish such a delicious fish yeah such a fun fish to catch where do where do you where do do you guys have any idea where they go this time of year i can confidently say no and i think (laughs) no one knows i really think no one knows i think that's one of the questions mdmr is trying to answer with these pop-off tags, they're trying to find out where they're going at this time of the year. Yeah, I don't, I don't, it's really strange to me. I, I, I sit up at night thinking about it all the time because it's, I don't know, you know, I won't, I won't see any until, you know, July comes around and, yeah. you know, start seeing them here and there. And then they, they move to structure and different things. And uh, watching the, the for me, that you guys can take this to have how you, how you want but I, I think it's really important with triple tail, the water temperature, um, towards the, the end of June, you, you notice that the the lower water column or the higher wa- water column becomes warmer than the bottom, which in the spring, it's the opposite. So when you have this warm water all the way, you know, a few months into the season, you're catching them until like that second cold front comes through and all of a sudden they're all on the bottom. Yeah. And you'll catch them on the bottom. And it's it's really strange to me but then i don't know slowly surely or not they they just disappear and i i kind of think that they follow that that warm water underneath they just move out i don't know where they go yeah. and then they find themselves back in the same spot the next year i, I wouldn't doubt that at all you know and these kinds of questions that you're pondering that's what a fisheries ecologist does. I mean, and just as a reminder, an ecologist is simply someone who understands the factors that influence the movement, that factors that influence an animal, you know, temperature, salinity, dissolved oxygen, you know, water velocity, pH, any of these things. And for fisheries, um, you know, we know that temperature is such a strong influence on the distribution of fish. It's huge, you know, salinity, um, dissolved oxygen you know all of these things and so those are the fundamental types of inter- of uh, relationships that I'm interested in um, and I agree I think I think we could continue to study these things for the next 50 years and still only just be scratching the surface yeah I know that's crazy and you know people tell me that uh, oh you shouldn't go kill all those you know triple tail or whatever um, and to hear you say that we should kill I mean, it should be one of the better harvested fish, especially when the alternative to me is is redfish, you know, because, like, they're so heavily targeted already, um, which now triple tail are too, I guess. But you can't really say that. But 
the idea that you know triple tail are found all over the world mm-hmm. we really don't know where these things are coming from yep. <laughs> and redfish are only found here you know you know it. <coughs> and i like to think like i love eating fish i love catching fish and cleaning fish i love eating fish but there are certain species that i feel better about eating than others you know i love the taste of a grouper yeah. most i don't i've never had a bad tasting grouper you know regardless of the species but those are longer lived fish. They, you know, they, yeah. they're slower growing fish. So when I eat something like a triple tail, not only is it delicious, but I, f- I feel good because I know that that species replaces itself. It replenishes itself very easily. You mm-hmm. know, they have lot, there's lots of eggs and they, they grow very quickly. And, you know, you can feel better about eating yeah, a fish man, like, like that. We, we killed a, uh, a 28 pound scamp grouper one time and we had the otoliths pulled on it and it, it was 42 years old. And whenever you, you're sitting there eating that fish, it, it does make you feel a certain way. It does, you know. And it I mean, does. I mean, if this thing's, you know, he's twice the age of what I am or three times the age of me. Yeah. And we just, you know, you, you don't think about it like that. <laughs> and, you know, and that's what we have an assessment for, right? Because should we stop harvesting grouper altogether? Absolutely not. I mean, we should be able to harvest as much as we can from that population while still allowing it to be sustainably harvested the next year. Because, you know, I believe grouper are in the ocean, you know, in large part for us to be able to enjoy catching and eating. So, but that's why the age structure is such an important aspect that goes into a stock assessment. Age and growth for someone in my line of of work, determining how old fish get and how fast they get to that age. um, It's one of the basic things we do. Yeah. And I mean, that's another uh, question that I have is, you see, like, commonly in, in speckled trout, but also among other species, that, like, the Texas coast will grow much more 30-inch trout mm-hmm. than Louisiana will. And is that because the species is doing something to make sure the prolification of the species continues? Or, or like, what? Why, why is that? Why do we have the... You know, why Why is it that all bait fish spawn and they all are about the same size, you know? Yeah. <laughs> No, I've thought about that with respect to the specs. Um, and, yeah, they definitely get bigger in Texas than they do in Louisiana, and they definitely get bigger in Louisiana than they do here. And Florida, too. They have bigger ones yeah, in Florida. Yeah, they do. And I don't know why that is. Um, I bet there's a, I mean, I bet there's an, an ecological explanation. I, I just haven't, uh, I haven't looked into it. But my guess would be that it's something about that environment that provides them the nutrients or the food resources that those fish need to be able to grow faster and more quickly without having to devote as much of their, you know, energy to something else. Yeah. So p- species grow fastest and best in their optimal environments. Um, and so it looks like, you know, those places in Texas where they grow those giant specks, I mean, there's just something about that habitat that's better for that species. Yeah. I don't know. I, you know, I think about like like what what was the reason for the uh the average growth of the red snapper grew as well. Like there used to be smaller red snapper than what there are today, but now we have like the average size from 2011 uh 2007 to 2011 grew by 4 pounds. So like, the average size of fish being landed, you mean? Mhm. Yeah, I mean and there's lots of things that can affect that. You know, those strong year classes mm-hmm. moving through is one. But another one that, that that folks like me often forget 
is that fishermen get better at finding the bigger species, the bigger individuals. I mean, I'll put it this way. <clears throat> if you look at the landings, if you look at the size of the winning shark landed at the Alabama Deep Sea Fishing Rodeo over time, starting back in the 50s, and you see the size of that shark increases and increases and increases through the 60s and 70s and peaks right there in the kind of mid to late 80s. Were the sharks getting bigger? No. Fishermen were able to go deeper. They had better tackle. They had better technology to be able to target these sharks. Uh, they had winches and things like that. So they're getting better at finding the bigger individuals. So, and oftentimes it's a combination of both. You know, for the red snapper, that example there, maybe there is just a strong year class coming through. Um, good recruitment, um, good survivability of the age zeros or what we call like when they're eggs and they first start turning into small fish. Interesting. I, like I have a, I have a theory about this, and you can tell me if you think that this is completely crazy, and I should stop saying it, <laughs> sure. or if it might make sense to you. So, to me, there's things that we can't explain. Like if, for instance, uh, there's a type of plant out there that if a certain insect comes in and it starts eating that plant, other plants around that will emit a certain chemical that will tell the insects to leave mm -hmm. basically they don't like it and they leave there's also a book that I've, i want to start reading it's called deep i think but they explain that there's a uh, coral will spawn in complete synchrony around the world meaning that you can actually take a piece of coral put it in a bucket underneath a sink in london and that piece of coral will spawn in exact synchrony as coral that's out in the ocean so it's like very, you know, things that we can't really explain. But I would, I think that these species like speckled trout and the example we just talked about, red snapper, might grow in size and release of a genetic of fish that will reproduce more in order to compensate for the amount of fish that's being taken out. Do you think that it's possible that the environment can do something like that, the where we're taking so much out of it every year and then they decide that something happens to where they know that they need to reproduce in this way and produce this genetic of fish for the prolification of the species. Is that possible? So there's a lot to unpack there. Um, and the, there's a lot of really interesting thoughts that you just brought up. Uh, so I would start off by saying, yes, I think there will always be things in nature that we can't explain. Yeah. Uh, and I'm completely comfortable with that. You know, having spent a lot of my time trying to figure out why some things are the way they are in the ocean, I'm totally fine with the fact that there will be things I'll never understand. Um, to your question about, you know, genetic fitness. Yeah, and just to really, what I'm basically trying to say is that this is an example of how we're actually part of the ecosystem. The ecosystem's realizing that they need to produce this in order for the humans to sustain. Sure. So from, you know, in, in kind of that basic biological context, species um, are able to alter their life histories um, in uh, response to changes in, in external pressures. So, for example, Perfect. I mean, it's just like you were saying, you know, <clears throat> some species of fish have, have shown compensatory capacity. So in response to being either over or under harvested, their reproduction can change, you know, um, accordingly. They become more fecund, they produce more eggs, um, those eggs have shorter larval durations, whatever it is. I mean, 
that's that's adaptation and those adaptations do occur on scales that we can observe in our lifetime um, and that's you know some of the amazing that's so interesting oh, it's, man. it's that's, amazing that's freaking awesome you know, <laughs> these fish these populations have some pretty incredible compensatory capacities you know yeah. that are that, that are really really interesting yeah and you know your your example about the corals and I, i'm i'm in no way a coral expert but i d it is true that these corals spawn um, very synchronously in specific response to to moon phase and temperature and a host of things that coral biologists understand very well and they can predict they can say okay on this year we know that these corals will be spawning on tuesday uh, march the 6th and i mean that's a literal thing they can go out that evening of tuesday march the 6th you know for example and that's when that coral spawn will be taking place unbelievable it is i agree it's like what what causes you know i mean yeah. there's to me to me it's almost proof that there's a god you know <laughs> i mean that, that's a different conversation yeah, but, yeah, I, it but i but i <laughs> but i absolutely think that it doesn't take much to look around in the natural world to see proof of god in my opinion it doesn't take much i mean people that spend time on the water i mean i see dozens of times per trip um, I see evidence of God in the natural world. All yeah, around. it definitely, definitely does. It, it gives you a different perspective, man. That's, it's really a cool conversation there. Um, but, um, what, what else, as far as the great American red snapper count, would we like to know as far as like you, so, so you're saying that there's, there's, uh, there's different parts, like you guys have different. So like some of you guys are, collecting information through sampling some of it's through surveying some of it's is that is that right how does all that, that work yep that's absolutely right you know those three kind of different tiers of information that goes into a stock assessment but with respect to the great red snapper count you know there's this massive effort that was put forth over those couple years and yes the end result is our number um, was a value that's roughly three times more than what the previous assessment would have predicted so the question I get most often is, well, does this mean that I'll be allowed to harvest three times more fish than I would have been otherwise? Um, and the unfortunate answer, the sad answer for me, is no, um, because a lot of those fish, those quote-unquote extra fish, are not in areas that you can access, right? They're way out in the middle of nowhere. So it turns out the assessment that NOAA provided, let's say for the fish in this one region here, this nearshore region where we know the fishing pressure and we know the population dynamics pretty well. The great red snapper count predicted about the same number that the federal stock assessment would have predicted, right? So in those areas where there was equal sampling and, you know, mm. equal, you know, equal efforts, then those numbers were actually pretty surprisingly close. It's just the fact that the great red snapper count was able to also go over here and more here yeah. and more, you know, way over here where NOAA Fisheries just never had the resources to be able to do that. So money, I mean, you throw enough money at a problem and it provides opportunities um, yeah. that you wouldn't be able to realize without. Yeah. And the, um, I don't mean, I don't want to say this rudely. I'm trying to say it nicely as possible. But if you were wrong, if, if they were so wrong then, like why do they think they're so right now? The federal assessment, you mean? Yeah, like the greater the yeah the federal what what was it the federal assessment now the Great American Red Snapper <coughs> Count. Was yeah, it? I mean, and so that's kind of the way it was set up is 
NOAA Fisheries is who manages um, fisheries in the United States, and that's an agency, right, under the Department of Commerce. So the idea behind the Great Red Snapper Count was to do a completely independent assessment. So no people from NOAA Fisheries, right? Right. Just a completely independent set gotcha. so that it's like saying, all right, if I see this, um, what does the next guy see? So it's, it's two different opinions. Gotcha. Right? So... It's two different viewpoints, and we approached it in a very different way than NOAA Fisheries had done. But right. now, you know, the next step is saying, okay, how do we take the results from the Great Red Snapper count and include those in the next stock assessment for Red Snapper? Because now that we have this $10 million worth of additional information, how does that in get incorporated into NOAA Fisheries' next assessment of Red Snapper? And that's what we're, that's what we're working out right now. Very interesting. The Great American Red Snapper Count is now, um, like, definitely more favored by the fishermen, I would say. Um, they were pretty happy to hear. I think most fishermen were that there's, you know, more snapper. They were willing to admit there was more snapper than what they had previously thought. Another question, um, the uh, there was a, a study that uh, one of my counterparts uh, told me about that they're participating in, and it's basically the mortality of the fish so it's they catch a fish and they video it being released in order to see if the uh, fish has been eaten is that part of the stock assessment as well yes i'm glad you asked about that actually because it's a very difficult part of the stock assessment to understand so we all know that there are either regulatory or ethical reasons why we catch a fish and release it without keeping it, right? So regulatory, maybe we catch a fish that's smaller than the regs. Maybe we catch a fish that's out of season, all right? Or some anglers will just say, well, I'm against keeping any fish, so I just like to catch a fish and release it. So for whatever the reason, many fish that are caught are released. The question is, do all of those fish survive? And we know the answer is no. You know, even if you see it swim off quick and, and strong, some of those fish are going to die. The hard part comes to try to put a number to that. How many of those fish die? And man, that's a tough thing to get at. And we call that post-release mortality. Mm -hmm. So trying to understand what that post-release mortality is, it's something that my group here does a lot of work on. We use cameras. We use fancy electronic tags. We use all types of techniques. But at the end of the day, it's just a very difficult thing to, to quantify. Right. And so um, following this year's snapper season, they reopened it in Louisiana and allowed four fish per person. And I would say I was really happy with knowing that there was more red snapper after American red snapper count came out that they said, oh, there's more. But then, you know, I question everything. So I'm like, well, why do, you know, why do they think it's right now? And then in the fall, they reopened the season, but then went to four fish per person. And like maybe uh, numberly or statistically, that may make sense. But what I saw as a fisherman is that we had fishermen that were already, you know, um, willing and able to go fishing at two fish per person. And then they show up and then they can keep four now. And to me, like it was almost harder f to fulfill, you know, the four. Mm -hmm. And it, to me, it, it didn't make sense to, to up the limit. Cause it was like, p fishermen say it all the time about speckle travel. If they go down to, 
You know, our speckled trout limit's 25. If they go to 15, the expectations already failed a lot sooner. So, you mm-hmm. you, you know what I mean? Like, you, you oh, caught yeah. them and you're done and you move on about your day. Um, what do you think about that? Like, why would they increase the limit after already getting anglers used to keeping it at two, you know? It's yeah, you know, and that, that – that illustrates a really unique relationship between fisheries science and fisheries managers. You know, so I'm a fisheries scientist. You know, I, I do the sciency stuff that helps provide information to the stock assessment. But ultimately, even that advice that comes out of the stock assessment, that goes to a separate group of people, fishery managers, and they're the ones that make those rules. And so they may say, well, we want to increase uh, the minimum size limit for specs or we want to decrease uh, the number of days in the season, or we want to increase uh, the bag limit. And, you know, they have reasons they do those things, and those reasons aren't always clear to me. Mm-hmm. But, you know, but they they get decided on based on, you know, a number of things that luckily we're able to have a glimpse of. You know, yeah. that when we go to the things like the Gulf of Mexico Fishery Management Council meetings, we can have some insight. We can see how that sausage is made for lack of a better term and see what goes into making those decisions. But as fishermen, as stakeholders in those fisheries, we are able to weigh in and say, Hey, we don't want to have, we don't want our bag limit to go to four. We want to keep it at two per person per day. And those, those get factored into that decision. Those voices get factored into that decision. Yeah. I don't know, man. It was just, you know, I I, th- I think that the the end goal of recreational anglers should be to go out, have a good time, catch some fish, and be able to come home and eat it. Mm-hmm. And whenever they allocate four per person, and then other times of the year, I can't even keep one, because mm-hmm. that to me is my only complaint about the uh, the way that they manage red snapper is the fact that they actually close it. There's not another species really that they you know. Well, I guess they're making more now. Trigger mm-hmm. fish and stuff. Oh, yeah. They're making a lot more seasons now. But whenever you say that you you can't go and catch it, but you can go and buy it, I th- I really think that that's that's probably the baseline art like really complaint that a lot of fishermen have. Like I can speak for a number of them, but just to be able to keep one um, for if a shark might get it, or if you were fishing for something else and one blew up, you know. Yep. I think that would change the mentality upon us, you know, working together. That could change a lot. Just through not telling people they can't do something. And you know I've, what I mean? And I've heard that a lot myself, you know, rather than keeping four per person per day for just a handful of months per year, why can't we keep two or one per, per person boat. Per, or per boat? Right. One the per boat year. for the whole year. Sure. That's all I'm saying. Just no, I, one. Because one 10 pound red snapper, I mean, we're eating yep. for a little while, you know? That's right. No, hey, <laughs> I, I can totally see the rationale behind that. Yeah. And those are the types of decisions that those fishery managers you know, that they're faced with. Yeah. And, and again, you know, it's incumbent on us as stakeholders in that fishery to make sure that our voices are heard yeah. because there's just, somebody else I got to talk to. Huh? <laughs> I mean, there's always somebody else to talk to right? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, fishery managers, those are the decisions that they're faced with. And, you know, there's always going to be two sides to that coin, but you know, oftentimes the decisions that get made are just based on the most feedback that's provided. So, you know, no. Uh, I would encourage you and myself to to remember that those are the types of things that we should be bringing to the attention of our fishery managers. Yeah. Um, I really appreciate that, man. And uh, just, you know, my last topic, I know we got to get going, um, that I usually like to to end with is 
what do you think we can do, um, you as a scholar, me as a fisherman, what do you think that we can do to better preserve our resource? Just just your personal opinion. Um, you know, what more do you think we can do? I, I know we're already doing a lot, and it sounds like you're doing a lot of work. And I, and honestly, I think overall we do a pretty well job at managing our fishery as it is. But what more do you think we can do? Great question. I'm glad you asked because uh, there's two things I'd like to end with. Um, well, actually three. The first thing I'll say is that I agree 100%. Today's angler is more invested in sustainability and conservation than any time before in history. So I give us all a, a pat on the back for that, right? We're, we're all headed in the right, right direction. Second thing I want to talk about um, is a course that we've started here at Mississippi State University called FISHES. Right? That's acronym for Fishermen Invested in Science, Healthy Ecosystems, and Sustainability. And the whole point of this class is to give fishermen tools, whether it's a physical tool like a, a descender device or a dehooker, or um, you know, mental tools like telling them how to get involved in the stock assessment process, how to get involved with their local fishery management councils, you know, how to better understand the results of a stock assessment. We go through all those things in this course because we know people are interested in those types of things, right? So I would encourage anybody listening to, to look up that class. We have Facebook, Instagram, all of those types of things. I looked into it prior to our interview. Is there actually a time where it's set up now? Yeah. I know there wasn't one. When we I set, it's set up in the fall, so we usually run it in October. Oh, okay. Okay, so this will be fall of 2022. 2022. We, we try to wait till some of the best fishing time is done, so we're not interrupting people's fishing time. But we try to have it done before Thanksgiving because we know that's a busy time of year for folks. Okay. It's a it's a five week class. We meet once a week, um, and it's been really good. You know, so I'd encourage you know anybody listening to check that out. How many of those have y'all done? We've only this. We've only had one class so far. It's a one brand new initiative. Brand new. Brand new. Mm -hmm. Just finished our first class here this past October. And, and what day of the week is that one day? We did it on Thursday, Thursday, uh, Thursday evenings. But you know. Uh, it, we're willing to do it whenever, whenever works best. Cool. I'll look into it. People. I'm not going to commit to it yet, but I'm I'm going to um, look into it. I hope you do. I'd like to, like yeah, to get into. And then, you know, the, the last thing I want to mention when it comes to what your everyday angler can do to help conservation and sustainability of our fisheries um, is a new program, a new initiative called Return Them Right. Um, they've, they've launched this new campaign. Their, their concept is how do we as conscious, you know, conscientious fishermen do a better job of reducing that post-release mortality. You know, what are some of the best practices we can use when we're returning fish to the water that we're not going to keep and fillet? You know, do we use things like descender devices? We've all pulled up, you know, big red snapper that have, you know, the stomachs protruding out from their mouth or, you know, bloated or, or mm -hmm. bug eye, pop eye and things yeah. like that. You know, what do we do with those fish if we're not going to keep them? Well, this program this initiative return them right helps give us the tools that we need and again whether that's a physical you know sequelizer descender device um, or an inverted hook whatever you need to help get that fish back down to depth so that it can live to fight another day so that it can be caught by a fisherman at another day because none of us at the end of the day none of us want to see waste if we're not going to keep the fish we don't want to see it thrown back and be eaten by a, a dolphin or a shark we want that fish to reach its home on the bottom of the ocean and live to be caught another day. Right, so right. I would encourage anyone listening to check out that 
initiative. It's a brand new program uh, that we're really happy to be involved with, and we think it's it's really going in the right direction. That's awesome, man. It's really cool. Well, guys, with that, we'll go ahead and end it. Um, it was very nice to have you. I really appreciate this, man. And uh, I always like to invite people to go fishing. So if you ever want to come down to Venice and come and do it, I know Angelos um, Apetos, he keeps talking about coming. So maybe we could do like a group trip. Y'all come I would down love there. That. I would love to hang out with, with you guys and uh, get to know y'all more and learn things because I always learn so much when I sit down with you guys. Likewise, man. I will definitely take you up on that because that sounds <laughs> fantastic. And I appreciate you having me on here. I, I got a lot out of it. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good one. Thanks for listening, everybody. Please give us a follow on Facebook or Instagram at Tunatown Talks. Also, if you'd like to book a charter with me, you can do so by visiting our website at mgfishing.com. That's Mexican Gulf website, where you'll find my online booking calendar with all my open dates. And remember, guys, always be safe while out on the water.